have your copy of the Word of God, would you take it and let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We've entitled our message today, Is God Punishing Me? And follow along as I read. I wish we had time to go through the entire chapter. We don't. We're going to have to be somewhat selective. But follow along as I read verses 7 through 11. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. Follow this carefully. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we might share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This particular sermon really grew out of almost 40 plus years of counseling. There have been many, many times over the past 40 years where I've sat across the table or across the desk from people who have come and laid out their heart to me. They've laid out their life to me. And oftentimes in doing so, they talk about the difficulties and the hardships and the trials and the struggles and the losses that they've experienced. And they will look across the desk at me and with tears running down their face, they'll say to me, I want to know, is God punishing me? Maybe that kind of thought has gone through your mind at some particular point in your life. You've thought, you know, I don't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. Somehow God must be punishing me. Look at all that I've had to go through. Look at the loss that I've experienced. Look at the difficulties and the trials and the setbacks. I've not been able to do the things that I thought I was going to be able to do. I've lost people who are close to me and whom I have loved dearly, and I know that I'm not going to see them ever again on this planet. What's going on? Really? Is God punishing me? There's four things I want you to see about this in this particular passage. But before we get to that, let me tell you a short story. Back about 10 years ago, um, I was asked to come and speak at a pastor's conference in Germany. It was a church in Cologne, Germany, and one of the TMS grads, a wonderful friend of ours uh, who was also a part of our fellowship group before he went back to Switzerland, was my translator. His name was Martin Manton. He was a big guy. He spoke English very, very well. In fact, he spoke French fluently, German fluently, and Italian fluently. And he was my translator. Uh, he learned to speak English because during his high school years, he actually came to the United States 
to play football. Can you believe it? From Switzerland. He's a big guy. And he played American football, uh, which is very rare to find a European that plays American football, but he did. And so he would speak English without any accent whatsoever. You would never know in the world that his native language was German. And um, so he, he went through the master's seminary, graduated, and now he's pastoring in Zurich, Switzerland. But at that particular time, he was translating for me there in Cologne, Germany, right in the shadows of the big United Nations building. There was a, a church there that um, um, had really people from all over the world in it because most of them work there at the United Nations building. And at that particular time, there were around 200 pastors and their wives that came from all over Germany and at least the western part of Europe to come to this particular pastor's conference. And we were teaching all day. So I began early in the morning, and we had sessions that went all morning and then all afternoon. And the last session, and I had another colleague that was working with me, so we would trade off sessions. Otherwise, I'd be dead at the end of the day if I was doing them all. And so he was doing one, then I was doing one, and he was doing one. And at the end of the day, I had the last session, and Martin was translating for me. He was standing to my left as he was translating into German. And when I closed out that session... I was so tired, I could hear my bed calling me. John, come to me. Come to me. So I was really tired. So I ended in prayer. I was wrapping up my notes. Martin was doing the same thing. And I caught in the, my peripheral vision a woman just scurrying up the aisleway to the front. She was an elderly woman around 75 years of age. One of the first things I noticed about her is she had... She had a scarf tied around her head, and she had a very, very long coat that went clear to the bottom because um, it had been raining all that day. And I noticed how swollen her ankles were, which suggested congestive heart, heart failure. And she came up, and she grabbed my big translator by the arm, and she stuck a finger at me. And I'm ready to say to Martin, Martin, just tell her I'm not responsible for anything I say after 8 o'clock in the evening. Tell her to come back tomorrow. I'll answer the questions then. But before I could say that, Martin turns to me and he says to me, John, this woman says she wants to tell you something she has not told anybody in her 75 years of life. <sighs> when a 75-year-old woman says that kind of thing to me, okay, she has my attention. I'm going, okay. So I said, let's go over here. So we went off to the side, sat down in three chairs. And this woman, I said to her, listen, Cher, what is, what is it that God has put on your heart? What's going on? And she began to share with me one of the hardest stories I think I've ever heard. I've heard some really bad things, but this ranks right up there. She grew up in the Soviet Union. Born early 1900s at that particular time. And um, as she was growing up, her father was a pastor. He was a pastor of an illegal church. His, her 
family actually were descendants of Germans that had come from Germany to Russia way back in the late 1700s when, if you remember, Peter, Peter the Great uh, was assassinated. Then his wife, Catherine, took over the rule of Russia at that time, and she ruled for 34 years. Russia was extremely, extremely poor country, um, but they were land rich, uh, but they didn't have very much. And in the late 1700s, um, Catherine the Great ended up going to Germany because the Germans at that particular time were the greatest farmers in the world and saying to the German farmers, listen, if you're willing to come to Russia and teach us how to do farming the way you do farming, we'll give you huge plots of land. Huge plots of land. So tens of thousands of German farmers left Germany, went to Russia. And even to this day, my wife and I just a few years ago were in Samara, Russia, right in the central part of Samara, Russia, and there are still German conclaves from back late 1700s that are just all over that part of Russia. German descendants that, are, that grew up. And of course, when this gal grew up, she grew up under Soviet rule and her father was a pastor and pastored this illegal church of about 400 people that met out in the woods every Sunday morning. And it was a hard ministry, but she grew up in that church. She was relatively happy during that time. She became a teenage gal. And when she became a teenager, she met a young man in that church, fell head over heels in love with this guy. She believed that he really loved her too. They developed a pretty intense relationship. She made a very tragic and sinful mistake and spent one night with that guy. And as a result of spending one night with that guy, she got pregnant, which brought shame upon her parents, shame upon her, shame upon her church. Everybody in that town knew about it. It was horrible disaster. And what made matters even worse, and I can still remember the look on her face, was that she thought this guy really loved her, but as soon as he found out that she was pregnant, he didn't want to have anything to do with her. And that crushed her more than anything. And her father and mother were not quite sure what to do about it. And what to do with her, of course, being Christians, abortion was not an option. So, her parents, um, her uncle, her father's brother came along and offered a suggestion. He said, why don't we get her a job in another town, which jobs were very hard to come by, early 1900s there in Russia, but let's get her a job in another town, let her bring the baby to full term, give birth to the baby, give it away for adoption, and then she can come back and, to our town and save face. She hated that idea, just hated it. Uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to leave home. I don't want to go wherever it is. You're going to get a job for me. Not, not interested in doing it. But for lack of any other plan, they decided and agreed to do that. And then she described to me the day that they took her down to the train station and, and her 
father was there and her mother was there and her uncle was there and she was so incredibly angry at them she refused to say goodbye to them she just got on the train and that was the last time she ever saw them it was a two-day trip by train she finally made it to the city got off the train a guy met her there took her to the job where she was supposed to have turns out it was a communist work camp and she was supposed to be the cook of the camp. There were over 600 men in that camp, and she was the only cook. She had to prepare two meals a day for 600 men. And then she looked at me with tears running down her face, and she described for me, I'm giving you a very long story that took about an hour, an hour and a half to tell, just short amount here. With tears running down her face, she began to describe for me how she was violated every day, sometimes repeatedly during the day. She was living a hell on earth. And I look at her, and the tears are running down her face, and I look at my big translator, and Martin's got tears in his eyes. Nine months go by, baby's full term. It's the middle of winter time. She's walking into town to buy supplies for the kitchen. The baby decides to come. She is all by herself. And she describes for me how she sat down in the snow and delivered her own baby. And you've got to understand, from her perspective, it was that baby that had caused her so much pain and heartache. She was still so deeply angry. After she delivered her own baby, she took her baby and she threw it out over the ice. And she killed her baby. Got up, went into town, bought her supplies, went back to work. And the tears just flowed down her face. Through a set of circumstances, she was eventually able to get out of that particular work camp, go to East Germany while the wall between East and West Germany was still up. She got a job there. Not long after she got a job there, she ran into a young man. This time, they got married. Not long after they got married, she got pregnant. When her husband found out that she was pregnant, he left her and she never saw him again. Now she was left to raise that little girl for the next 20 years, which she did under communist East Germany. Her daughter grew up, was 18, 19, or 20, ran into a young man, fell in love, got married. Not long after she was married, she gave birth to a, a granddaughter Two months after she gave, her daughter gave birth to the granddaughter, her daughter and son-in-law were in a terrible car accident. They were both killed, and now she is left with her granddaughter. For the next 20 years, she raises her granddaughter by herself. In the meantime, the wall between East and West Germany comes down. Everybody in East Germany that was extremely poor came flooding into West Germany. She was part of that migration. 
into West Germany and she located right in Cologne, a few blocks from the church where we were at. Her granddaughter started attending the church that I was speaking in and through that experience, her granddaughter surrendered her heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Radical transformation in her granddaughter's life. Just radical. And she kept coming home every time she'd go to church say, Grandma, you got to go to church with me. Grandma said, not interested. Come on, Grandma. you got to go to church. Not interested. Grandma, you got to go to church with me. I gave up on God and church a long time ago. Not interested in any of that stuff. She kept coming back. Grandma, got to go to church with me. She told her granddaughter, okay, I'm going to go to church with you once. Once. After that, I don't want you to ever say this again to me. She went to the church. In that one instance, God melted her cold heart and she gave her life to Christ. That was just four months before I showed up. Right? And now with tears running down her face, she's looking at me asking in German, kind of broken German-Russian, and that's what made it hard for Martin to translate. Is God punishing me? It's a great question, isn't it? Is God punishing me? I've done some wicked things in my life. Is this is what I get for doing that? I noticed she had a little Bible there with her, a little German Bible. I said, listen, I want you to grab that Bible and go over to Romans chapter 8. She didn't know where Romans was. So Martin had to take her Bible, turn it over to Romans for her. In fact, why don't you take your Bible, put a marker here, Hebrews 12, go over to Romans 8, just for a moment. And I said to her, now I want you to take this, I want you to read it out loud for me. Read verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. And in her broken German, she read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I said to her, do you know who wrote that? She said, no. I said, a man by the name of Paul. I said, do you know who Paul is? Uh, no, I don't remember who Paul is. Well, aside from the fact that the Apostle Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that before he became a believer, he participated repeatedly in the murder of Christians? This is a murderer writing these words. And she looked at me and she looked down at the text and she looked at me again and she looked down at the text and she read it again, there's therefore now no condemnation. And the tears swelled up in her eyes. And then I explained what it, exactly what that meant to her. And I said to her, and listen, I want you tonight, I want you to tonight go home and I want you to memorize that verse. And I want you to come back tomorrow morning and I want you to be able to repeat that verse to me and tell me what that means in relationship to your life. Here's a murderer writing the words, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And she agreed to do that. We closed in prayer. She had walked several blocks 
in pouring rain to come to those meetings. And so we made sure she had a ride home. Next morning, I saw Martin in the foyer of the church and I said, Martin, have you seen our lady? He said, no. And right when he said that, she comes bursting through the doors of the church, moving just about as fast as a 75-year-old gal can move with the biggest toothless grin you ever saw. Like this, I said, Martin, have her quote the verse. He said, she already did. I said, how did she do? Oh, she quoted it perfectly. I said, well, ask her, what does this mean in relationship to her? And she looked at me straight in the eyes, and she said to me, I have carried so much guilt for over 55 years. And it's gone. Jesus Christ took it. It's gone. I said, that's it. That's it. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me flush that whole thing out for you just a little bit further. Go back to Hebrews 12. There's four things I want you to see here in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. Four very critical things. I recommend that you write them down. You say, I don't keep notes. And I'm going to say to you, well, today's a great day to start. <laughs> All right? It really is. Because you're, you're going to find yourself needing that, needing these four things, or you're going to run into somebody who will need these four things, and you'll need to have them at hand. So, Pastor, I'm going to turn everybody into note-takers today, okay? Is that all right? Four things. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the first thing. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, listen carefully. I, the first point is this. I must view hardship as God's discipline. I must view hardship as God's discipline. That's the first thing that's key. When he says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure, another way you can translate this is that we can, are to endure hardship as discipline. There's another one, very legitimate way you can translate it. We, can, we are to endure hardship as discipline. So I've got to view hardship as God's discipline. That's really key. We have a tendency not to view it that way, but yet God says that is exactly what he's doing in our life when he brings any hardship into our life, no matter how small it may be, no matter how horrific it may be, God says he brings hardship into our lives for a divine purpose. When that hardship comes into our lives, Divine fingerprints are all over that hardship. That's really critical. Let me explain this to you. Put a marker here again. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want you to look at this. We're taking a look at what is it and how it is that God works in our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 8. What is it that God is doing? How is it that He is working here? Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. 
God says, through the pen of Moses, you shall remember all the way which your Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. In other words, God says, one of the main reasons that I took the children of Israel through the difficulties and hardships of the wilderness experience was to what? Well, he says to humble them and to test them. Now, listen carefully. If you've got good theology, you understand one of the things your theology tells you is that God is omniscient. God is not testing the people of Israel so that he can know what's in their hearts. He already knows what's in their hearts. That's not why he's testing them. He's testing them through the wilderness experience so that they can know what's in their hearts. That's the issue. They think they know what's in their hearts, but they don't. It's not until they go through hardship that all of a sudden they realize what is really going on in their hearts. We think we know when everything's going our way and there's no problems in our lives at all, we think everything's just fine. But God sees beyond the surface and he sees all the imperfections and all the impurities in our lives and it requires the pressure that he brings into our life to cause those impurities and imperfections to come to the surface and all of a sudden they do. You go to Detroit, Michigan, you go into some of the car museums and you see their big displays on how they take the pistons of cars and put them under huge amount of pressure, way beyond than a, that of a normal engine until all of a sudden these pistons that are in these cars start to show cracks and little fissures in, that, in the pistons because they want to know exactly where that metal is going to become fatigued and break down every bit of there's no such thing as absolutely pure metal form they want to know exactly where that piston is going to break down they know your car has a planned obsolescence in it they know when it's going to break down because they've tested it way beyond the extremity of what you put it through even though you may put it through a lot So they, they put it under extreme pressure. Well, God does the same thing in relationship to our lives. He does the same thing. Sometimes when I'm counseling people, I'll say to people, listen, if I have a sponge in my hand and I hold it over my Bible and I squeeze that sponge and my Bible becomes soaking wet, why is my Bible soaking wet? They look at me like, you think I'm stupid, right? It's soaking wet because you squeeze that sponge over the Bible. And I'll say, no, 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 that's not the reason why it's soaking wet. The reason why it's soaking wet is because that sponge has water in it. All right? It has water in it. I can take a sponge, hold it over the Bible, squeeze it, and it doesn't because it doesn't have any water in it. The reason why those wicked things come out of your mouth, the reason why you think ungodly things when your heart is under pressure because it was preexistent there and God puts your heart under pressure so that all of a sudden you're able to see the wickedness that is part of your own life, it comes out and there it is. And you say, I can't believe I said that to my wife. I can't believe I said that to my husband. 
I can't believe I did that. But if we were really honest and we had God's view of our heart, we would say, instead of, I can't believe I did that, I'd be saying, I can't believe I don't do that more often. We wouldn't be as surprised. It's a humbling view of our heart. It's a humbling view. God took the people of Israel through the hardships and difficulties of the wilderness experience. And He takes you through your own wilderness experiences to show you what is in your heart. Verse 3, He humbled you and He let you be hungry and He fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Sound familiar? We saw that in Hebrews 12, right? Our first point we have to emphasize is the fact that I must view all hardship as God's discipline in my life. He is doing something. He is revealing to me the true condition of my heart. He is showing me who I really am. That's why He's taking me through what He's doing. Our God is a tester of hearts. That's what He does. Go to Proverbs chapter 17. You can see this. Proverbs chapter 17. We're interested in verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnish for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. In other words, He takes our hearts through hot times like a furnace, like a refiner's pot in order to purify the metal. God is a tester of hearts. That's what He does in our lives. This is really key. Your own pastor read a little bit early in the service back in Proverbs chapter 3. You saw this. In Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, where it says, For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects his son in whom He delights. And then He says in verse 11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. That's what we tend to do, right? We get upset at God. God, why have you let this? Let this come into my life. Lord, don't you understand what I'm going through? Don't you see the hardships that I am encountering now? Have you turned your back on me? Is that what you're really doing? And we begin to loathe. It's a, a huge disdain for what he is doing or allowing done in our life. Wow. This is significant. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're interested in verse 67. Look at this. Psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So one of the benefits of affliction is the fact that we tend to pay more attention to God's word. The more we are afflicted, the more it takes us back to the word of God. Verse 68 says, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Well, you see, he says that right after he says it's God who has brought the afflictions into his life. 
Instead of loathing the, the affliction, he is looking at the affliction as something that is good. Verse 71, Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So not only does it take me back to the Word of God, but it turns me into a disciple. It turns me into a learner. I begin to learn from it. Verse 73, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The word made is the Hebrew past tense. God made me in the past, but now he changes tense when he says fashion me. It's in the continual sense, Hebrew imperative, or I mean the imperfect, I should say, where your hands made me in the past. Now your hands continue to fashion me. So God is, even though he made me in the past, he's continuing to fashion me for his purposes. Wow. Verse 75, look at this. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We have a tendency to think that God is being unfaithful when he afflicts us. No, 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 no. He is being faithful. His judgments, his declarations in regards to what happens in our life are always righteous. There's nothing that changes that. It's always righteous. There's nothing that he allows into our life, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how much we think it personally hurts us, that is not for greater good in his righteousness. Nothing. Then in verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my afflictions. I would have perished if I had not delighted in you, it delighted in your law, then I wouldn't have understood. I would have become angry, bitter, hateful towards you for allowing these things to come into my life. If your law had not been my delight, I would have been crushed underneath this. Wow. So number one, this is just number one. I must view hardship as God's discipline. You ready for number two? Let's go back to Hebrews 12. We're interested in verses 8 and 9. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? So number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline. Number two, listen to this. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father because he is clearly saying here that this is what loving fathers do. Now, I realize that there are a lot of fathers out there in our world today that are not loving fathers. They could care less about the welfare of their children. In fact, one of the greatest evidences of an unloving father, father is the fact that that father's not willing to bring hardship and pain into that child's life. It's one of the evidences. And we know that because there are examples of that in Scripture. Just for a moment, let's go back to 1 Kings 
chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Kings 1, 5. Look at this carefully. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, that Haggith was his mother. Adonijah was the son. In fact, he was the fourth son of David. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. He didn't have a problem with self-esteem. <laughs> saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And then verse 6 is a commentary on David's fatherhood. Look what it says. His father had never crossed him. You see that? If you look at uh, some Bible translations have that footnoted. And if you go to across, it's literally the Hebrew word, his father had never pained him. That's literally what it said. His father had never pained him. He grew up full of himself, Adonijah. At any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man and he was born after Absalom. Adonijah could turn the women's heads. He was a handsome guy. He was full of himself. He wanted to be king of Israel. He's willing to take the throne away from his father, David. He is full of himself. And it ends up in his death. Loving fathers bring painful discipline into their children's lives. Loving fathers are not abusive. Those are only fathers that have no control over their sinful anger. They're not abusive. They don't slap a kid, poke a kid, punch a kid. They don't do anything like that. But they are willing to spank a kid. They're willing to do that. Contrary to what contemporary psychology says, there is no, absolutely zero proof that spanking is bad when done in a loving manner. Zero. That doesn't exist. I can go back and cite you study after study and the conclusion of those studies on what they supposedly point to and they do not point to loving discipline. They're pointing to fathers that take out their sinful anger on their children because the children are inconvenienced or the children are bothering them. Or, no, no. The loving father is concerned about that child's welfare long term and is still willing to bring pain into that child's life in order to redirect that child in the right direction. That's the way God is. He is a loving father. He's acting as a loving father because this is what a loving father does. He brings hardship into my life. That's what God does. He's acting like a loving father in my life. This is really critical. We rebel against this. Go back to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 Helps us to understand this a little bit more. Later on, I think David improved in terms of his fatherhood after he had seen what had happened to Adonijah. But it took some hard lessons. In fact, I want you to understand that later on in his reign, David was the one who wrote Psalm 89. Verse 32. Then I will punish their transgression. David is writing for God with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. David learned how to be a father by studying God his father. 
David learned how to do that. Let's go to the book of Job just for a moment. The book of Job, we're interested in Job 12, verses 5 through 10. Job 12. Notice here. This is Job. His rebuttal against his accusers, in verse 5 he says, He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. Now what he's saying basically is this. Job recognized a, a, a standard principle of living, and that is people who have easy lives view calamity, hardship, difficulty, and contempt. People who have easy lives. We have all kinds of Americans today have very easy lives, and they hold any kind of setback, any kind of calamity in contempt. Verse 6, the tents of the destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into, the, into their power. And the, the idea is all these people are haughty, they're proud, they think they've done it, but it's God who's really brought them into power. Verse 7, but now ask the beasts and let them teach you and the birds of the heaven and let them tell you or speak to the earth and let it teach you and let the fish of the sea declare to you who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. What is he talking about? The calamity. The calamity that had come into his life. The hand of the Lord had done this in whose hand is life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Who's he talking about? God. He's talking about God. It's the hand of the Lord that has done this and brought this calamity. So you understand, number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. You say, okay, I understand what you're saying up to this but particular point, but you still really have not answered the question, is God punishing me? That hasn't been answered. All right, now I want to answer it. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, verse 10. Look at that. In verse 10, he says, for they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. Number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, He's acting as loving Father. Number three, listen, this discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. This discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. There are a lot of Christians who think somehow, like Roman Catholics, they think that they are going through hardship as a form of penance to pay for their sin. No. 
No, no, never. Not if you're saved by the gracious atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, because in order to say that, you have to think like a Roman Catholic. Christ died, covered some of my sins, not all of them. I have to add his suffering to his suffering, my suffering, in order to have all of my sins paid for. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's Roman Catholic false theology. That is not what Scripture says. It violates everything in the book of Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at this. Hebrews 10, verse 10. He's talking about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and he says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When he says once for all, there is no need for additional suffering and sacrifice. It's once for all. It is a sacrifice that has covered everything. Skip down to verse 12. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He's covered our sins for all time. Past, present, future sins covered by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that I can add through my sufferings in order to pay for that sin. And we all ought to be charismatics about that. All right. That's really key. My sins past, present, future, taken care of with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified, or better translated, those who are being sanctified. So Christ is the model. He's the atoning way. He is the full atonement. He is a once-for-all sacrifice. There is no additional sacrifice or suffering that needs to be made in order to pay for your sins to say that somehow God is punishing you in a punitive way to pay for your sins calls into question the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is never true, ever true. It is only because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we can walk free. We're not paying for anything. If we were really paying for our sins, we'd be in hell. If we were really paying for our sins, you say, well, you don't know the life that I live. I live every day in hell. And I'm saying maybe you have a really tough life and I'm not demeaning that at all, but you do not understand the biblical concept of hell. You think your life is bad? Hell is a thousand, ten thousand times worse. This discipline, see, this is the third point. This discipline is not punitive. It is corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. God is purifying my heart. He is squeezing it and bringing out all the impurities so that we can be more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. That's why he takes us through the hardships that he takes us. That's why we sometimes unexpectedly lose our job. Sometimes unexpectedly the car breaks down. Sometimes unexpectedly we lose somebody really close to us. He's taking us through the refiner's fire in all of that. No matter how small the difficulty may be, no matter how great the difficulty may be, he is taking us through all of that. This is really key. You say, okay, I got it. I got it. I understand. Number one, I've got a view 
All hardship is God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, the discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. I understand that. I understand that. But let me tell you, let me ask you, how do I know that it's worked? How do I know it's worked in my life? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that question. That brings us to verse 11. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And all God's people said, Amen. Right? Yet, to those who have been trained by it, it doesn't say to those who are paying for their sins, those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How do I know that the hardship that I'm going through has done its job? Number four, I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. I'll know when the hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. I will no longer be fighting God. I'm no longer going to fight God. I'm no longer on the inside saying, God, why are you doing this? You've made mistakes. And I got news for you. God has not made a mistake in all of eternity past. Never will he make a mistake in the future. And he hasn't begun making mistakes with you. You're not his first mistake. You're not. He doesn't make mistakes. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly how to make you into Christ's likeness. He is not making mistakes in your life. How do I know that? How do I know it's done its job? Because my heart will be at peace. That doesn't mean the trial has gone away. That doesn't mean the pressure is gone. That doesn't mean that he's resurrected my loved one and brought that loved one back to me. doesn't mean any of that. The trial's still there, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because I know that trial's in the very hands of a loving and sovereign God who is my Father. I know that. Who disciplines me for my welfare so that I can share in His holiness, so that I can be like Jesus Christ. That's what I'll know. One author said, listen to this, afflictions are as nails driven by the hand of grace which crucify us to the world. Afflictions are then blessings to us when we can bless God for afflictions whose single view in causing us to pass through fire is only to separate the sin he hates from the soul he loves. End of quote. You hear that? That's what he's doing. He's attempting to separate the sin he hates that's so much a part of your heart. Separate that from the soul and the heart that he loves. That's why he takes us. Those afflictions are nails driven by the hand of grace. Wow. <sighs> Probably America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, lived back in the 1700s. 
Around the time that Peter the Great of Russia ruled and then later on Catherine the Great. He was the president of the college in New Jersey, which later on became Princeton University. He had a loving wife. Her name was Sarah Pierpont Edwards. They served in ministry together for several years. They dearly loved one another. Jonathan died from a human perspective prematurely, March 22, 1758, of a smallpox inoculation. Had a bad reaction to it. Upon his death, his deeply grieving widow wrote to their daughter. Listen to what she says. What a wise woman. She says, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. The Lord has done it, but my God lives, and He has my heart, and we are all given to God. Wow. Can you do that? After God has taken His rod and struck you across the back, can you turn around and kiss the rod? That's what she's talking about. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on Psalm 88 and verse 7, he says this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to do that. Kiss the wave that has thrown me against the rock of ages. Wow. Have you learned to do that? There's four key things here. I must view hardship as God's discipline. When God brings hardship into my life, He's acting as a loving Father. This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. And I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. Remember our... Russian lady friend in Germany. Remember her? A couple years later, I was back in the same area. I saw her pastor. I said, Pastor, how's so-and-so doing? (laughs) Threw up his arms. Great. So what do you mean? Well, he said, our church is about six, seven hundred in size. Once a month, we have a big church dinner. Everybody gets together and has the dinner. She cooks the dinner and she doesn't let any of the other women in the entire church into the kitchen. (laughs) Really? I said, you know where she learned that back in the Soviet concentration camp? He says, yeah, I know. Here was something that she learned way back then and now she was using that to benefit the body of Christ. after all she had been through. And I had one of her dinners. It was great. I thought it was going to be like concentration soup or something. (laughs) But it was wonderful. 
good German-Russian dinner. So are you still fighting God? Are you still fighting Him in what you're facing? You're fighting a loving Father who's trying to do you good. You're like a little spoiled kid. Stop fighting. Let it do its perfect work. Let him bring out those impurities. Get rid of them. Confess them as sin. Don't go back to them. Let peace rule your heart, not angst. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Lord, the more we understand You, the more we understand Your Word, the more we realize how loving and gracious You are to us every day. And we fight You. We fight You. We get angry at You. We begin to have horrible thoughts. We loathe Your discipline because it's painful. It's hard. But You are preparing our souls for glory. Like a good coach that causes his team to suffer. They practice and practice and practice and they work and they work and they work hard. Not because he hates the team. That on the day of the game, they'll be able to perform well. So on the day that we are ushered into your presence, we will be holy. Help us to stop fighting you. Help us to understand that that discipline is coming and that hardship is coming from a loving Father who cares about us far than we'll ever know or realize while we're on this earth. And this we pray in the merciful and gracious name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.